What's up, world? One way that you can support the show is by liking and subscribing on any platform you're listening to. And don't forget to check out our Clips channel on YouTube. Thank you for supporting the show. We at The Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. Hey everybody, I'm Cameron. I'm Willie. And this is The Other Side of Hell. And today we have a special guest, Cole. Nice to meet you guys. Good to see you. Cole, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. It's so good to have you here. Uh, so so to give everybody a little bit of backstory, we've known Cole for a little while. Um, he's sort of a, a, a big person in our local recovery community. I wouldn't say that. I, I would say that. I'm confident <laughs> I in that. I wouldn't say that. And, uh, and Cole, uh, you, you and I were in treatment close to the same time. Yeah, just a, probably about a week apart. We just missed each other. I remember going to my first AA meeting, and you were standing outside waiting. <laughs> was I smoking? No, you weren't smoking. No, you were. Well, maybe you were. <laughs> um, but no, I remember we went. It was a Friday night. We went off-site, and you were standing there, and everybody came up to you and was like, Hey, Cameron, how's it going? And I was like, I don't know this guy. But, right. Cause but I was, I'll say hi anyways. Yeah, because you know? I knew all those people, and, yep. and I didn't know you. Yeah, I was brand new. The new guy. The new guy. Now you're not the new guy. Now pretty no, seasoned i've been around for a minute or yeah. two yeah well and that's why we wanted to have you here is because uh, i always really appreciate uh you know what you have to say and the wisdom that you share in, in meetings and and you know you've always been somebody that i really enjoy talking recovery with and i figured you're a perfect fit for the show so well, thank I'm, you i'm happy to have you here and as always i am joined by my other co-host <laughs> who i'm okay with having yeah been. every time yeah haven't asked me to leave yet. No, no, no. no. It, it's good to see you, Willie. Thanks. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Feeling good. Good. Good, good like start that. to the good good new year, man. Yeah. Not a bad start. I like it. It's far cry from where we started last year. I think so. Yeah. I, I definitely have to uh, to step back and acknowledge some growth because it's pretty easy for yeah. me to, to just get caught up in what's not working or what doesn't look like I, yeah. I thought it would. Man, I... I if if our li- if our listeners viewers go back and, and listen, I'm not sure what episode dropped the beginning of 2020, but uh, I'm sure you, that you could see some difference. And there there was definitely some some needed change within both of us and within the show and and the the format of things. And I think that's happened. And I think it's happened as a direct result of being willing to change some things, mm-hmm. wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, I would say that, you know, and and um, and, uh, and great, Willie. That's a great segue into our topic today. I, I want to talk about willingness, um, as always. Willie, Willie, uh, willingness, is Willing, willingness, 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 <laughs> willingness is bringing the willingness today. Um, as always, you segue into that beautifully. I always love the way you do that, and uh, or I love hate it. Yeah, you hate it. I do love it, but I also. But you're hate willing. It. You're willing to deal with it. Yeah, today I'm definitely that. willing to deal with it. Yeah. Um, but you know, I wanted to talk about willingness because I feel like uh, I I've just been sort of asking myself. Um, I I go back to to when I was 
in you know first in recovery when when I first met both of you because you both have been there you know since since uh, since day one of, of me you know on this recovery journey and uh, and I just asked myself you know like was I willing to do everything you know that I was everything that it took to get sober eventually it got to a place where I absolutely was willing to do everything that it was going to take to get sober and and I think now at this stage of the game I ask myself am I am I bringing that same willingness into into the other parts of my life like if there's other things that I want just as bad as I as I wanted sobriety am I still approaching those things with the same willingness that I had when I was first getting sober mm-hmm. right and so willingness I think is a great topic it's definitely it's definitely plays a, a big part in in my recovery, and I can't think of two better people to to discuss that with. And so let me ask you, Willie, when I say willingness, yeah, what what do you think of? Do you go back to to the first stage of recovery? Ah, uh, not really. You know, yeah. for for me, when you brought up the topic and and we started discussing some of the points of it, I started thinking about, you know, as as you know, kind of seasoned in the recovery movement and. And as far as working the steps goes and being a sponsor, it's more for me in the recovery space, the arena of sobriety. I'm like, what am I willing to do to help the new guy kind of is what popped Mm. up for me. Like Mm. that's, that seems to be more important. I feel like, I feel like the work as far as being sober is, is pretty solid within me, you know? Um, However, I have to really check myself on what what's my willingness level as far as being of service in this and, and showing my gratitude for what others did for me and moving that message forward and being willing to take on the guy with 24 hours that was as bad as I was. Right. that was just mm-hmm. finally willing to, like, even sit down and talk to another alcoholic, you know, because for a long time I was just. I, I was absolutely willing to try to chase comfort in the bottle, you know, try to chase. I was willing to give it one more fucking shot. And by shot, I mean a shot of fucking liquor, a shot of dope, a sh- you know, just one more shot at this finding happiness with inside the chemical. And, you know, finally that broke and I wasn't willing to die over it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the, the willingness to chase my addiction stopped was when it got really close to the the parent approach of death coming right stronger and stronger and said fuck i'm i'm not willing to go any further today i think i'm willing to try to do something else and so you know that's what came up for me was that you know what am i willing to do to stay of service to this stuff well and and you know to the to that end essentially it is sort of the same willingness that we apply towards our, our sobriety, like, because Mm -hmm. obviously being of service is a big part of staying sober today. Mm -hmm. And so am I still willing to go to those same links by being of service? Right. And do I recognize that by being of service, I am, you know, thus taking care of myself and my sobriety. Yeah. For you, Cole, when, when I say willingness, you talked a little bit about, uh, before the show about, you know, what, what willingness looked like for you, you know, in the early stages of, of, of before you came into the rooms and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the transition into absolute willingness. Like talk about talk about that a little bit when I when I talk about willingness or when we talk about willingness today, like take us through a little bit of your process of, of sort of getting to that point. Yeah, there was, you know, early on in recovery, I knew that I wanted to live a better life. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to to be happy. I wanted to live a productive life. I wanted to 
do all the things that all these other people seem, you know, seem like they could do just fine. But I somehow couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't stay sober. I couldn't, I couldn't live without drugs or alcohol, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I wanted all of those things, but I wasn't willing to do a whole bunch of things that I didn't want to do. And that's whenever I hear willingness, that's the thing that pops up into my mind is, you know, we're willing for all the good stuff. Right. I mean, right. we're willing, we're, I'm, I'm willing to sit back and just receive all of this great thing, all of the great things that life has to offer. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, I wasn't willing to get a sponsor. I wasn't willing to, uh, go to meetings. I wasn't willing to go at the time, you know, before I even got into the recovery rooms, I wasn't willing to talk to a therapist or a psychologist, or I, I didn't want to do any of those things, but I wanted all of the benefits. I wanted sure. all of the right. good stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I realized that I came to a crossroads. I, I needed to figure out how to get past some of these things that were holding me back. And I had to figure out, you know, what, uh, how, how committed I was to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. in my, you know, I didn't know how to live without drugs and alcohol, but I knew that living with drugs and alcohol was also not an option. So right. I was kind of in a place where I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So these people start telling me, hey, read this book. Get a sponsor. And every single thing that popped up that they said, I did not want to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't, I hadn't read a book since high school. Why would I want to go read a book? You know, right. Especially, especially one that's 70 years old. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. It's a hard read. I can relate. You know, why, why do I want to go get a sponsor and talk to somebody when I have all these other people that are like, Hey, tell me what's going on with you. You know, Mm -hmm. mom, dad, wife, you know, (laughs) boss, all of these people that are the, in my mind, I needed to explain to right. Why am I going to go pick up one more person to explain these yeah. things to when mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't realize a stranger nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. I, I love how you always like when when you're sharing it. A plumber. Oh yeah. <laughs> how how is a plumber going to help me with my alcoholism? Yeah, yeah. I see that didn't make sense to me. You know, it's like I, I didn't want to go talk to a therapist. And I would lie to therapists and I'd lie to them, you know, yeah, I don't drink that much and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's going to talk to a plumber going to do for me? <laughs> right. Just, you know, nothing against plumbers. My grandpa's a plumber. Yeah. You know, but that's... He's another alcoholic. Yeah, right? that's just... Right. I didn't understand that concept. Right. And in, in recovery, it kind of feels like you have to walk in the dark for a minute. You just have to trust. You just have to trust. Yeah. And that's... I had to be willing to be like, you know what? These guys, Willie, you know, we didn't talk about this, but Willie came into the treatment center when I was in there and you shared your story. Mm -hmm. That was my very first time I ever met you. It was seven years ago. Yeah. You know, and um, I remember hearing you. I remember hearing you say, you know, some things. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, was that possible for me? Right. You know, is that can I can now this guy seems to be sober and he's been sober for a mm-hmm. year or so at that point. I, mm-hmm. I can't remember, but it was like, you know, could, could that happen to me? Can I live this way? How? Well, it looks like he got a sponsor. Well, shit. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I know, but I don't want to do that. Right. You know, right. it's like, well, maybe I need to do a bunch of things that I don't want to do, you know? And I think that a lot of people get stuck on that. They really do. A lot of people want a lot of, they want sobriety. They want a lot of uh, good things to happen to them in their lives. But, you know, you have to, you have to be willing to just trust that other people know better than you. Yeah. Well, and you really have to, you have to set aside your, your, your old ideas of what, mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't work because, you know, luckily, like when we go through that process, we, we get to see how much our process does not work. Right. right? Like we get to see just how screwed up we do things when, mm-hmm. when we do them the way that we want. So whenever I'm doing the things that I do want to do, there's negative consequences. Yeah. So like you said, you know, I really had to be willing to trust that my way didn't work and that their way was at least a better alternative and, mm-hmm. and be willing to do one step at a time what they were telling me to do. Like right. yeah. Maybe I wasn't willing to, to think about taking all 12 steps at once, but I can think about meeting with a dude and talking about the first step. And then I can maybe think about, you know, like, am I willing to do what he's asking me to do? Right. And, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I, willingness breeds willingness, right? Like, like when we take action based in willingness, fuck the myth. The, the internal anguish was so great when I got here, mm-hmm. you know, it was so pain because like going off of what Cole was talking about. I wanted a better way of life, but I wanted a better way of life on what I thought my terms would give me a better way of life. Right. And I was so delusional about what that would look like. You know, I I thought that perhaps I could get a grasp, just a grasp on being able to use successfully Mm -hmm. and recreationally and that the obsession wouldn't consume me and that I could become this normal drinker or this normal user that only gets high like on Christmas, like because some magical way I'm going to become successful and be able to take a vacation to Switzerland over, you know, the, the holiday and just get some cocaine. And like, I had these illusions that at some point that was going to work. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that's a delusion, you know, well, fortunate, I guess, fortunately now that's a delusion for the addict, right? That's not going to happen with an addicted mind with it, with, with the, uh, like that one guy said, with the gift of alcoholism, right? right? With the gift that once I start putting this stuff in my body, it consumes me completely. And so I had this illusion that at some point that's going to happen for me. And I, I, like what Cole said, like I wanted this better way of life, but I was only willing to go so far for so long until again, the pain became so great that I was willing to shut the fuck up. Right. And yep. take some direction, right? I obviously need to start at square one. I don't know shit. Yep. Everything I try fucking burns me to the ground, and I keep getting deeper and deeper in this hole, and the grave keeps getting closer and closer and closer. And the reality that I only have one life keeps getting, you know, more and more obvious. I only have this one life, and I'm fucking wasting it, and I need help. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm willing to meet with this fucking guy yeah i I like you you talk about the alcoholic mind or the the addicted mind you know one thing that i had to understand was that it it, when i was in in active addiction every thought that i have is trying to figure out a way 
for me to get more or to use. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So I didn't I didn't quite understand that because you think that an addict being an addict, every thought you have is bad um, when it comes to alcohol. But I would even even my good thoughts were in some ways trying to steer me yeah. to go to go drink, right? So how was it that I thought that I could think my way through this mm-hmm. whenever when you know, uncontrollably I'm thinking constantly of how to get more, how to get more, how to get more, mm-hmm. how to get more. I'm gonna put myself into this situation so that I can be free and I can drink later or something like yeah. that. You know what I mean? We, so it's just all consuming. And I didn't under, quite understand. I, I thought it was all separate. You know, I have my addiction here and then I got my work here and then I yeah. got this here. I didn't understand that it encompassed everything, everything that I did. And so coming to that realization that it's like, man, like I have to change all of this stuff. It's not just the addiction's not just over here on its own. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. It's everything that I do. Right. You know, and so that kind of kind of blew my mind for a minute in, in therapy or in, in treatment when they're talking about that, that every thought that I have is trying to get me high or, or drunk mm-hmm. in some way or another, either now or further down the road. Yeah. And am I even willing to believe that? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Because delusionally, like at first, like that can't be true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, like everything is trying to get like all my thoughts are trying to get me to use and drink all of them. And then even as, the good ones. Even. Yeah. yeah. Like, like what is the, the, the honor amongst thieves? Like, right. well, I lied to you to protect you <laughs> yeah. from whatever it is, this behavior that I'm doing, you know? And, and so, you know, was I even willing to take a look at, at the truth behind that? You know, and once I was. Once I was willing to step back and listen to this other fucking guy that's been through, like, cause everything that my original sponsor told me was on point with the way I behave. Yeah. I couldn't deny the behavior behind what he was telling me. I was like, yep, I do that. Yep. Yep. I, I've lied about that. Yep. I've done that sexually. Yep. I've consumed it that way. Yep. You know, I've, I've drinking every time that I said I wasn't. You know, I couldn't deny the facts behind my behavior. And that kind of opened me up to more willingness to listen a little bit more and kind of, all right, and then share a little bit more. And when I'm, when I was willing to listen and then willing to share that created confidence because it was well received by another alcoholic, you know, another person in sobriety could identify with me as a newcomer and go, yeah, I was in your fucking shoes. I know exactly how you feel. And this is how I, let me pull out my crystal ball and kind of read your mind a little yeah, bit that blew my mind yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah they i like that you say that you talk about the progression though because i wish i could say that when i came into treatment i was like okay i'm willing to do whatever it takes to stay sober for the rest of my life i wasn't mm-hmm. i didn't like like you said you know maybe later down the road or something like that i came in with the mindset was that I just didn't know, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know what the rest of my life was going to look like. Yeah. And that's sort of what it feels like. It feels like we really just have to get our ass kicked just enough to, to become willing. Like I know for me, like I really had to get to a point where it was just very, 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 very clear that Mm -hmm. my way was not going to work and that I had to, I had to just shut up. Like Willie said, shut up listen and do what other people were telling me to do. And, and it took, you know, I, 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 you know, said to you, like, 
I've known you for seven years. I've known you for just as long and I don't have that much time. You know, like it took me a process to figure out that I can't, I can't hold on to those, to mm-hmm. those ideas. And that's what I was doing, you know, for the first little bit, it was like a lot of yeah, buts. And we talk about that on the show before, you know, a lot of like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but uh, yeah. you know, like I, I, I understand that this is what you're telling me to do, but like I've, I've got this and I've got that. And what about this? And what about that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it wasn't until I was willing to let go of all that. And it took me, it took me, getting my ass kicked and, and having a clear view on what was really going on for me to go, okay, no more. Yeah. But it's like, whatever these guys say, like, that's what I'm going to do, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I, I feel like I, I see this happening around me sometimes where, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a hard time with people in my life who may be struggling in the same way, you know? And it's like, I, I wish for them to get their ass kicked just enough, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it, and it's a weird thing to wish upon somebody, but I wish that because that's what it takes. Like you have to get your ass kicked just enough. You have to lose just enough. Like you have to, you have to be dragged across the bottom of, of the rock bottom for just long enough before you're willing to do what it takes. You're willing to do the shit that you don't want to do yeah. in order to actually begin to put your life back together again. Mm-hmm. years and I'll I'll admit and it's people think I'm heartless sometimes but people will come to me and they'll say hey this person's gonna lose their job and this person's gonna do this and this person and I just say well good yeah <laughs> maybe they should lose their job right you yeah. know maybe you know because I've lost two jobs I've lost jobs mm-hmm. and if it wasn't for that I wouldn't be here yeah you know, if it wasn't for some people that actually held me accountable for things that I did do, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't be here. Just like you're saying. I mean, I don't wish bad upon anybody. Right. I right. really don't. But sometimes you you got to go through it. And I, I'm not going to deny somebody going through yeah. it if that's what it really takes. I'm mm-hmm. just not. I'm going to let them. And when they f- reach out and they feel like, hey, like. I've got some willingness beat into me now. I'll, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll help them, you know, but I'm not going to save somebody's job now just for, just so that they didn't lose a job, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, I guess I call it heartless, but. Well, I remember hearing that too, like in early sobriety. I remember, you know, other people that would come in and speak to us who had, you know, a couple of years or, or whatever the case was. And, and they would say, listen, if I could do this for you, I wouldn't. Because I would rob you of, of the journey. I would rob you of, you know, of, of coming to this place within yourself that you will get to by going through the shit that you're going through right now. And, and like, mind you, it was shit. Yeah. It, it was hard. It was uncomfortable. It was everything that I feared, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it was possible. And that is something that I didn't expect. Like, that was something that that I didn't anticipate was that it was going to be doable mm-hmm. because I had just spent so much time doubting and, and so much time, you know, hating on myself because when I was doing it my way, <laughs> I was fucking it up. Yeah. So, you know, of course I became willing at that point. Yeah. We call it the gift of desperation, right? right? Don't deny him the gift of desperation. 
I'm glad. I, I, and people did deny me the gift of desperation over and over and over again, co-signing my bullshit and yep. fucking letting me back in and bailing me out and patting me on the ass and, you know, trying the softer way. And it wasn't until, you know, you as, as you know, like and it wasn't until I got woke up with a gun in my face for mm-hmm. the last time that I finally woke up like, wow, this is out of hand. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm fucking losing it. I'm losing it. Right. You know, and. I have got to do something uncomfortable, get through the discomfort of looking myself in the face and all the fucking destruction that I am, right? Because that's what it ultimately it took, right? That, that was the thing that I was fearing the most was that I was going to find out that I was as bad as I thought I was, yeah. right? And, and yep. not only that, I'm going to reveal myself to you where you're going to reject me Mm-hmm. where you have to reject me, as I've shared about this before. Not only will you, you have to. You have to reject me once you get to know me because I am unacceptable. And I knew at a deep level, at a deep, deep level, that the behaviors that I engaged in during my addiction were not okay. They weren't healthy. They weren't safe. They weren't fun. I was addicted, and I was trapped in that cycle of self-abuse. And once you get to know me, you're going to label me as my behavior. And it, once you label me as my behavior, you have to reject me. Mm-hmm. And then I'm alone, which is another one of my fears, right? right and it fucking right. just goes yep. down this rabbit hole. Of, self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, this negative, like, fuck, and better off dead or, or whatever. And, you know, thankfully, uh, I had some people that in the beginning were willing to fucking work with me. Right. You know, their willingness to work with me matched my willingness to listen to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a recipe for success in, in this, in my sobriety. Mm-hmm. Well, and I really appreciate that you, that you brought it back to success, right? Because that willingness equals success. So when I, when I think about that and, and let me ask you, Cole, cause I think Willie touched on it a little bit, but does, does willingness still play a role in your life today um, outside of your recovery? Like when it comes to, you know, things in your daily life, your job, your marriage, your relationships with your kids, like is, is willingness still there? Is it still a part of, of your journey today? Oh, I'm yeah, absolutely. I mean, my brain and, and I, I, you say outside of recovery and normal like recovery is encompasses my whole life. Sure. Right. I'm not saying that you don't feel that way, no, but no, 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 I re- recovery encompasses everything that I do. So I've seen in in work, it there's something comes along and I'm asked to do something. Well, I don't necessarily really want to do that thing, mm-hmm. right? Fly to here or go there or talk to this person. I don't want to talk to that person, but I make myself do it in that moment because I know it's the right thing to do. Now I don't do the right thing to do all the time. Like I'm I'm. I am so imperfect. It's not even funny, but, um, I think just doing that next right thing, whether I want to do it or not, because mm-hmm. that was, that was such a big thing for me in my life was checking in with myself. It was like, okay, this is what's supposed to happen, but do I want to do it? And I really wouldn't do a lot of things that I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I talk about it a lot, but it was a big part of my life you know and then you start to bring other people into your life you start to you get married you have kids now you have um 
a lot of different dynamics and a lot of different worlds that are pulling you and asking you to do a bunch of things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to break it down to, especially, you know, now, and I learned this early on in recovery, but I have to break it down to right now in this moment, what is the next thing I need to do? Mm-hmm. I can't think of the whole thing. I can't think of the whole thing in, in sobriety. I can't think of, I have to really get down to the moment and say, okay, I'm supposed to call this person. I pick up my phone. I take it out. I look that person's number up. The next right thing to do is hit call. Right. The next thing to do is not hang up before that person answers. You know, put it to my ear. I I do that a lot. Today. Sure. T- t- just, just as things are going, if I get lost in the, well, if I, I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that and then... I, then these people are going to want me to come in and do this. And it's mm-hmm. just, it just gets too overwhelming for me. So to continue like the willingness of just living and doing the next right thing, I have to, I have to come down to right here, right now in this moment, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to be doing? You know, what's going to be the best thing for me to do right now. Um, and some weeks I go a whole week without doing the right thing. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. I mean, some days the only good thing I do the entire day is stay sober. Right. You know, I mean, that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. And other days I feel like I do a lot. I get a lot done. I, I, I contribute to my family and to my work and into, into recovery. And, and, um, you know, I mean, for me, both of those situations are fine. Right. You know, um, but I really, you know, I really t- took to the, you know, stay sober one day at a time, mm-hmm. do the right thing one day at a time. You know, sometimes I had to do the stay sober for five minutes at a time. Sure. That yeah. was the longest five minutes of my life. Mm-hmm. But that was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I and so it willingness, it being willing to just block out the future and just focus on this one thing that I have to do. And then when I do it, like Willie is saying, when I do that one thing and I get done, there's a sense of accomplishment. There's a sense of, there's a good feeling that comes on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And then I am more willing to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that, that kind of keeps me, mm-hmm. that keeps me going, you know, but I, I really have to be in the moment on things that are big, you know, like, like, yeah, like calling somebody. Yeah. That's, that, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's big funny. for me. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, that's big for me too. Yeah. yeah. I, I really appreciate the way that you said that, like the way that, the way that that breaks down because you know, like that, that it seems like such a little thing, but it's these little things that to us as alcoholics can seem like just these mountainous things. And you're talking about, you know, like the head running that you can get into if you don't just sort of just pick up the phone, just pick up the phone. That's all you have to do is pick up the phone. But you're absolutely right. You know, like if I think about, oh man, I don't want to talk to that dude. He's going to want me to do this. And then he's going to want me to do that. And then I'm going to be on the phone for 45 minutes and I have this other stuff I have to do. And it's like, you know, I can really get lost in that. But if I just think about, like you said, breaking it down one thing at a time, like, am I willing to pick up the phone? Okay, here's the phone. Am I willing to, yeah. you know, call this dude? Right. I think I'm willing to do that, you know, and just sort of break it down step by step like that. It becomes, is is it, it turns that, you know, that mountain into more of a molehill. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, like these, 
these huge things that I built to, up to be in my mind is, is, is gigantic are actually like doable. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, I can get overwhelmed with ev- pretty much anything. I really can. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's amazing to me today, seven years later, how much I have actually going on in my life right now. <laughs> when seven years ago, uh-huh. it was like, okay, wake up and get to treatment. That's my only responsibility. That's right. the only thing that I have going on. That's the only thing that I need to do. You know, and if I sit now and I look at all the things that are going on, I can get overwhelmed. My head hurts. I'm my. I get this brain fog. That's like I can't. Th- I can't fit one more thing inside of here. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and um, that's how I do it. I just I break it down with recovery today. If there's times when I'm like I don't want to go to a meeting. I'm tired. Right. You know, I've got a lot of excuses as to why I don't shouldn't go to a meeting. Um. I just need to walk out and get in my car. Yeah. You know, sit in my car. Okay. Turn it on. All right. Back out of the driveway. Cool. Head towards the meeting. It's, yeah. It's, it sounds, sounds stupid to say, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I mean, I'm not ashamed of it. That's how I have to do things. That's how I have to live my life now on things that I'm, I, at the time don't want to do. Right. Yeah. You know, well, I think what people need to understand, you know, hopefully, and I think the three of us at this table totally understand is that this isn't just an alcoholic problem. This is a person problem. It's a, it's a human problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and we get these false narratives about whatever it may be. Right. We get these ideas and these fears that, that somehow we're going to be harmed or we're going to be, um, put in a position of danger or, whatever and can't always pinpoint whatever it is that we're feeling but we go through and we put imperfect action on our lives and just move forward right and so willing willing to do this stuff like sobriety gave me the ability to create a life worth living right it gave Mm -hmm. me the ability once i got sober and was able to um start doing these things and start finding personality outside of intoxication right like because I was one way when I was intoxicated and I'm another way when I'm not. Mm -hmm. And the way that I was not intoxicated in early sobriety was completely new to me. And I didn't know that I could create this life around that looking however I wanted it to look. I could become this type of man that I could admire through action over and over and over again, right? And so the steps brought me to a place and working with a sponsor brought me to a place and, and going to meetings brought me to a place of success and, and happiness and fulfillment in certain areas. And I can expand on that if I'm willing to continue to do the work in those areas, right? Now, I'm always going to not feel like doing certain things. Always, right? Yep. We've talked about this. You know, that's across the board. That's, that's, you know, but we put non-negotiables into our life that say, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to show up for my life today because I've created this life that I wanted, right? That I discovered I wanted through sobriety because I didn't know that I wanted my life this way. I didn't know that I wanted to be this father and business owner and podcaster and, and voice and, and all these things. Those things came along after I got sober and started realizing that I can have such an amazing life that I'm not willing to give up over a drink. And all those things are 
insurance, mm-hmm. right? These mm-hmm. things that we put into our lives are insurance against the never ending battle that goes inside of our head that tries to take us away from the people that love us. Like for whatever reason, it seems like, like the, the addict inside of me wants me isolated. That's the goal of yeah. the addict, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the goal of the disease is to isolate me from everybody else and then kill me unto its own demise, mm-hmm. right? Like fucking yeah. this thing will kill me even though it's, I'm the host and it's going to kill itself. It will fucking still kill me. And so we put all these things in place. And the next thing we know is like we're running on autopilot, right? Like there's certain things that we're going to get in our car and, and the fucking idea is like, okay, don't start it. Well, fuck, shut up. I'm starting my, I'm going to a meeting, yeah. you know, I don't want to, I'm going. And then we go and we share and we, we find the new guy and like everything just blossoms out of this willingness to do what we don't want to fucking do right, over yeah. and over and over again. Like, yep. Fuck, never going to stop. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to keep trying, right? And willingness is dope. You know, I love it. Yeah. I love being willing to do some stuff. Well, and I really like, you know, the, the one thing that you touched on there is uh, is having having this life that we never really imagined. You know, like the only thing that I knew back in the early stages of recovery is what I didn't want my life to look like. Right. right? Yeah. Like I knew that I knew that the way it was going was not what I wanted and that, you know, maybe, you know, like the chicken or the egg, like what came first, right? Like it was a drinking because my life sucked or did my life suck because I was drinking? Well, I was probably drinking because I'm an alcoholic and, <laughs> it's, and, it, and it's fair to say that my life sucked okay. as a, as a direct uh, result of that, Yeah. you know? Um, and, and to sort of get to a place with that, like through having the willingness to work a program and through having the willingness to listen to other people and to see, you know, where their experience took them and to, and to take those experiences into my own path and my own journey. And then sort of like Willie said, like develop this idea of like, okay, well, what do I want my life to look like? And I think I always get stuck in these places where, you know, like where it doesn't look like I thought it would. But it's everything that I could possibly want. Yes. You know? Yeah. And so, like, am I am I willing to accept that life today is is so much better than I, I could possibly ask for? Um, and am I still willing to accept the fact as well that if I would if I had the life that I wanted, I'd fuck it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I always say this with my wife and I love my wife. Don't get me wrong. But if I would have married the girl that I wanted to marry, I'd be fucking miserable, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and thank God yeah. I married the woman that I did because she's, she's everything to me, you know? Yeah. And that's just a, another reminder of, 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 um, maybe a, a quote unquote God shot, you know, like, yeah. um, that was, that was put into my life for a reason. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful for it. And, you know, speaking of God shot, I want to get into, uh, to our war story today. Um, Brittany, Brittany, Brittany is our war story. She, she had a great, uh, a great story. And yeah. she, she talked a little bit about a God shot. It's, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm referring to that term because it's the first time <laughs> I've heard it. You hear yeah. a new phrase well, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm looking I'm for any that. opportunity, any opportunity to use I'm, that. I'm dropping yeah. bombs. I'm <laughs> dropping God shot bombs. And it's not the first time I've heard it, but I keep hearing it's the first it time I've heard it over and over. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I've heard it like two or three times now. And so I'm like excited to, to use it. But, um, but Brittany was great, man. Her man, story was, yeah, she was, was 
It's wonderful. Talk, talk again about not looking the part. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you know, when we hopped on and she started telling her story and just visually, I did not see this kind of destruction coming out of this woman. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> this amount of mess. Like, mm-hmm. she's just so put together. Well, like, and it seems a like heavy story. something that I hear a lot recently, too, is, you know, like, I wasn't the person under the bridge. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and we always hear this term, like, uh, the guy under the bridge. Like, I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I wasn't the guy under the bridge. And it's like, well, that guy under the bridge was somebody before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we, we and, 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 and I love it because they're absolutely right. Like, most of these people are people that, you know, you would never guess in a million years. Oh. And I, mean, I, used, I, I used to go to the liquor store. And so here they open at 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. right? Bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah I was upset. Crazy. I was upset about that. And they do not open <laughs> a minute oh, no. sooner. Nope. Right? Maybe sometimes even like two minutes after. Right? right. But I would park in the parking lot across the street because I didn't want to be the one parked in the liquor store parking lot. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't want to look bad. I would see people sitting on the curb doing the same thing I was doing, uh-huh. waiting for them to open the doors. But yet I would judge them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Somehow, because I was in a car and they were on a curb, I was better. And I wasn't like them. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know, this, yep. was, this was before any sort of recovery ever even existed in my life, you know. But it's, it's incredible how I would sit there. And now I have that, this realization that, I mean... Dude, I'm no, I'm just like them. Yep. Yeah. You know, yep. they are me, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to go just sit next to them, put my arm around them and tell them that they don't have to be there, yeah. you know, cause yeah. that's who I, you know, that's who I am. That's who I was. It's just my messed up thinking thought I was somehow better cause I was in a car mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and had a tie on. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll search for anything. We'll search for anything oh, yeah. to hold on to as, as an excuse. Sorry, that was to, off track. But you no, just said no, that. No, I'm like, just talking about things that just brought. It's back a perfect that. example of you know the fact that we are the lucky ones. Like like this era of of awareness, you know, keeps people like you, me, Brittany, mm-hmm. Cameron, from becoming the person under the bridge because right. because the safety net, the information, the willingness to help, the people. The resources—they're there for us now, yeah. mm-hmm. where they weren't for the guy that was under the bridge, you know. And I think we can all recognize that. Oh yeah, and I think I think Brittany recognized that too, you know. And I think it 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 took some doing for her to finally get to the point where she was willing to do whatever it was that she had to do in order to finally to get sober. And and she talks about you know getting that 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 point of desperation. I think we'll let her tell that story. It's gonna it's gonna definitely impact you. So. Without further ado, this is Brittany's War Story. Hi, my name is Brittany. I'm an addict and alcoholic. Um, And I feel very grateful to be able to be here to share my story today. Um, I just celebrated five years clean and sober on November 26, 2020. And after a really crazy year in 2020, I feel incredibly blessed to be able to celebrate such a huge milestone um, because five years ago, I did not think that I would even be alive to be able to tell a story like this. So 
I don't take that for granted by any means. And I just feel so blessed and incredibly fortunate to still be alive today. Um, but a little bit about me um, and my in my past and kind of like how I got to where I'm at today. So I grew up in a house with a lot of um, trauma and um, a lot of like affliction. And I think that when you're a child who grew up with any kind of childhood traumas, you don't really know what you're going through because it becomes like a sense of normalcy for you. And so um, although I was experiencing a lot of physical abuse, I didn't know that that wasn't out of the norm. I thought that people were always faking being happy or having like these happy, joyous childhoods and like families where they would all like be loving and hugging on each other. Like I thought everyone was faking about that. So in my house, um, I lived with my mom and my stepdad. Um, and I have a little brother, he's five years younger than me. Um, and in my house, when my mom had married my stepdad, um, I don't really remember much before that time, but when she married him, I remember that the culture within our house or like the warm feeling within our house like slowly dissipated and he was extremely abusive and I didn't know until years later that he actually struggled with his own addictions but it was an incredibly abusive situation for me um I I know now through years of like years of therapy and working with a specialist that it was actual um <sighs> it was it was more than just like abuse. Um, he would physically, you know, um, like hold me in my room for hours at a time with like these torturous beatings. And it, for the smallest things, um, he would just snap. And, you know, he was abusive towards me and towards my mom. And this just went on for years and years. And uh, I lived in a house where we didn't talk much about, we weren't allowed to talk about what was going on inside the house. It's like what happens in this house stays in this house kind of thing. And I kind of grew up with that mantra of just keeping things inside because we had to keep this facade like we were a wholesome middle-class family because on from the outside looking in it's like we had a nice house we had money we had cars we didn't really have to like struggle we were like your atypical middle-class family but on the inside there was all of this turmoil all of the time and um so from a pretty early age on I learned how to put up this wall and this mask and smile through pain and I've carried that with me even to this day. It's something that I have to constantly work on. Um, but going through that, I realized that my first uh, like addictive behavior or thing that I really looked to as a source of comfort was food. And I too, I struggled with overeating most of my childhood and young adulthood. Um, I was always an overweight, chubby kid. I would sneak foods all the time. My mom would have like these tubs of icing in the pantry and I would like sneak in it and like eat freaking icing out of the jar and like hide it. And then when she would try and make a cake, she'd say, who ate the icing? And I'd like blame it on a mouse or something. I don't know, like just, I would do this crazy stuff with food where I was like always hiding and like binging on sweet foods. And um, that was because I know now is because I was trying to just like, feel good. And food really made me feel comfortable. It made me feel comforted. It just gave me a sense of security that I was lacking. Um, and in return, it, it also caused me a lot of grief because then I was the overweight kid who had to deal with more teasing and bullying at school. And um, I, I never really fit in with my classmates or my peers because I was always like the biggest one. And back then they didn't have like cute clothes for fat kids, you know, like it was just, it was, that, that gave me my own 
that gave me even more problems with my self-esteem or lack thereof, because I just felt like, wow, I'm like super fat. Um, my mom was always really thin and beautiful. And like, she, bless her heart, you know, she's an amazing mom, but she would just make comments that just made me feel like crap about myself from an early age in terms of, in regards to my weight. And it just kind of aided in this thing where like, I, I didn't really feel like I, I loved myself or like I was lovable because I had, you know, like I had this um, abuse at home and like I had um, all of these eating issues and I couldn't stop eating sweets and then I was fat. And so that was kind of like the cycle that took me through into middle school. And I remember um, my first drink of alcohol was when I was 12 years old. Um, I would walk to school with my neighbor and um, she, her parents had a liquor cabinet. And one day we would just, we were just like, Hey, let's go in your parents' liquor cabinet. I don't even know how it happened, but we had these water bottles and we filled them up with random like wine and liquor and like all these random things we just threw it all in one water bottle all together like a melting pot of alcohol and we drank it on the mile on the mile walk to school and then we subsequently got like eight other kids in the like campus like to drink out of this water bottle and we're all walking around drunk and we ended up getting caught obviously because um someone told the teacher we all smelled like booze and she got scared and threw the bottle away and they found the bottle it was like a huge thing and we had to go to this um we had to go to this program, like this drug dare drug program. I don't know if you remember that from back in the day, but that's what we did. And um, I feel like that should have been a warning sign to my parents. Like, Hey, like who's drinking at 7am in the morning in the sixth grade at like 12 years old. But I think because I always was really well, really good in school academically that I, it was kind of easy to slip through the cracks or like blame it on the neighbor girl or whatever, you know, I didn't really have to take much responsibility for it. And, um, but at that dare program, I was introduced to all of the other kids who also had to go in the dare program who had these problems. And then I finally found like I had my little it crew, right. Um, so I started hanging out with them and, you know, just smoking and drinking weed. And, and I kind of found like, okay, I have my crew. I'm like this new, like emo. I, I went through like this little emo phase and like, I'm going to hang out with all these like sad, <laughs> these sad kids. And we're going to like smoke weed in the um, porta potties at school. And that kind of like took me through my middle school years. And uh, I felt like I finally had like a little sense of belonging, but I was so pained on the inside and just so depressed all of the time. Um, and just felt like I was never good enough. Like I wasn't going to amount to anything. Um, so fast forward on to high school. Um, when I went to high school, it was like a whole new world, like just a whole bunch of more people, um, new opportunities presented themselves to do more drinking because in middle school, it wasn't something that presented itself very often, but in high school, that's like a different ballpark. There were parties all of the time. Um, I joined the cheerleading team in high school um, and I really loved the notion of being the party girl. I loved getting the attention from people calling me on Friday nights, like, Hey, where's the party at? Or, you know, I don't know, for some reason, I really liked that notoriety. I wanted to be the party person and um, senior year, you know how they do those little yearbook things. And it's like most likely to be successful or most likely to be a doctor or whatever. Um, mine was life of the party. I really wanted to be one as the life of the party. And that's what I, I wanted. I thought that was so cool. That was actually the only reason why I bought the senior yearbook was because that's what I was voted as. And I just, I look back on it now and I laugh because I'm like, who aspires to be that? You know, most people in senior year, like thinking of like what they're going to do, 
you know, after high school and stuff like that. And I was just so focused on the lifestyle of partying and just having this notoriety of being like this cool party cheerleading chick. And um, in high school is when I really started to notice that I would black out and drink. Um, And I didn't realize that that wasn't, I knew that it wasn't normal because I was like the only friend doing it. Like I would try really hard not to black out, but I would always black out for some reason. And my friends would always have to tell me like what happened the next day. Like I wasn't able to drive my car. Somebody would always have to drive me home. I'd always wake up in like these weird places um, or like get locked out of my house. And my parents would have to like, let me in and like just crazy shit. Like my mom tells this story all the time of me coming home from a party and she thought she heard someone clawing at the door. And it was me trying to put my key in the door because I had driven myself home and her and my stepdads found me on the porch, like trying to fit my key in the door for like 30 minutes. And they pull me in and I literally like peed my pants. Like it was so bad. They tell me that story all the time and I don't remember it, of course, but, um, like, I'm like, wow, like, I'm surprised that it wasn't more alarming to the people around me, like teachers, friends, family members. Um, but again, I was really good academically. I, I, I graduated high school with like a 3.98 and I was accepted into nine universities. And I actually um, received uh, the Bill Gates Grant Scholarship, which is a full ride scholarship to any university in Washington state. So I by senior year, I already knew I was going to the University of Washington. I already had a full ride. Um, so I think I think maybe that's what it was that, you know, people are not really too worried about it um, because a huge sign is when you're like failing in school. That's when people like start to panic. So I think maybe that's why, because, you know, I, I held a job. I was able to hold a job. I was a cheerleader. I did really, really well in school. I did full-time running start. Um, so academically, I don't know how I was able to hold that together either because like I wasn't sleeping. I was like drinking all the time, skipping class, you know, all the things. I, I don't know how that managed to be a part of my story, but it is. And um, I don't know if that helped me or, you know, was part of the demise. Um, but anyways, I, I, I went on to go to University of Washington, which is in Seattle. Um, the It's like this huge city in Washington state. And it was like a whole new world. I come from Tacoma, which is like a smaller city on the outskirts of Seattle. And so moving to Seattle and living on my own in a dorm in university was just like, wow, my eyes were opened to so much more. And of course, I fell right in with the bad crew of people who were like, overusing prescription drugs to like stay up and study and maybe abusing a little bit more stuff on the side. And I was just introduced to um, different types of drugs that I was not exposed to where I came from. And, um, you know, the, the addiction and disease just grew from there. And around this time I started like um, mixing like uh, mixing like pills and cocaine and alcohol and not sleeping for days on end because I was trying to keep up with my studies because up until this point I was a rock star student but in college it's kind of different because no one's really checking for you um, your professors are not really on you like high school teach it's just a different vibe and so I I I, and I wasn't able to like skip classes. Like in high school, you can skip a class and just do the work and whatever, it's fine. But in college, it's not the case. So I ended up going like a whole semester with like barely going to class, like was failing out of everything, was just doing really horribly. And then I wasn't sleeping and I was, you know, constantly drinking and like doing drugs and partying and just, oh, it was so bad. I I really put myself into like a state of psychosis. And that's where um, one of my first suicide attempts happened. And um, 
I had to be hospitalized. And at that point, my parents knew that something was kind of wrong because the school had contacted them, the hospital contacted them with, um, you know, my story of, of self-harm at that point. And so they came to get me and actually took me back home. And that's when I went to my first treatment center. It was an outpatient treatment facility and they prescribed me antabuse, which is a medication, you know, not to drink alcohol. And I knew I had a problem because I would take the antabuse and I would still drink alcohol. I would get violently ill and I would like I was, I was not able to stop drinking. So that was kind of like a problem. So I quit that program after like three weeks because I was sick of throwing up and not being able to drink, you know, like I wanted to drink. So at that point, my parents knew that I needed to go to inpatient facility. So I went to an inpatient facility at that point. And after two weeks, I had gotten kicked out because I was like kissing on one of the boys in the facility. Cause it's like, if I didn't have drugs and alcohol, then I would want to use men to fill that void. It was like a constantly trying to fill the void with something, you know, whether it be men, food, relationships, sex, whatever it was, I was just always trying to like find um, someone else, something else outside of me to give me that security and make me pump my ego. Um, so I got kicked out of the treatment after two weeks clean. Um, but while I was in that treatment facility, Again, I loved falling in with the wrong crowds of people. And while I was there, I was thinking, I'm just drinking, you know, uh, I'm not doing anything that these kids are doing, you know, like they're doing hardcore drugs. And so I met up with these people and um, next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm abusing Percocets and opiates is really what took me out completely. Um, I started using methods of taking that pill that, you know, really took me down very fast. And within a matter of a year and a half, I'd say um, they were too expensive and I was completely hooked um, on them. So my, I, I, my parents basically gave me the ultimatum after finding like rolls and rolls of foil in, in my car. And um, they told me that I, I had to go to treatment again. So I went to another inpatient facility. Same thing happens. I get kicked out again after like 10 days because I'm, I found some dude in treatment and you're not supposed to intermingle like that and um, got kicked out um, after 10 days. And at this point, I was 25 years old, 24 years old. And um, the, the boy that I had gotten kicked out with had introduced me to heroin right when I got out. And I knew at that point that, you know, like I couldn't afford the pills anymore. They were way too expensive. Um, and that is when I, uh, that's my first time ever doing heroin. Within nine months, I was homeless. Um, I had lost, I, at this point I had a, a son. I had a, um, a two-year-old son at this point. Um, he plays a crucial part in the story um, because when I had him, I tried my best to like take care of him for like the first year, but ultimately he needed to go and stay with my parents because I was just completely unable. Like I was a train wreck. I would constantly like have a job, lose a job, be stable, be unstable as my, as the disease progressed for me. Um, and at this point I was completely incapable of taking care of him. Obviously um, my parents had were, had said like, Hey, you're done. You're not living at our house anymore. So I'm living with the boyfriend. He's like a drug dealer boyfriend. And um, it was basically bad news. And um, at 25 and a half years old, I realized in like September of that year, I was like, hey, I'm getting ready to turn 26. At this point, I was still on my parents' health insurance because I had gone to college. So I had gotten like the extension. Um, and I said to myself, I said, well, I've already gone to treatment a few times and failed. If I don't go to treatment before I'm 26, while I have the fancy insurance, I'm going to end up at like the Salvation Army where like the bums under the bridge go, you know? And uh, with that last shred of 
I don't, I don't know if it was, if it was like smarts, wits or what it was, but, um, something told me that I needed to go into treatment again. So I, I, I found the treatment facility on my own. Uh, my parents actually were trying to help me find um, a detox. We were unable to find anything from September until November. And five days after my 26th birthday, I was found a location um, in Kirkland, Washington, and it was an all women's facility. And they said I could go. Um, obviously, I'd lost the insurance. So my parents actually forked over like $3,000 for me to get a Cobra extension for one month. This was literally my last shot at sobriety. Um, I checked into detox um, on November 25th, 2015, and November 26th is my clean date. It was Thanksgiving Day on that day too, and um, I I did the thing. Like I I had one of the worst detox experiences of my life because when I checked in, it was Thanksgiving, so there weren't any like doctors on staff at that point. So I did like the first three days with nothing, and then I did a suboxone taper. Um, I was in detox for seven days, and then I transferred over to the all women's facility. It's called Residence Twelve, and I I think I needed that. I needed to be without any distraction from men. Ha going to an all women's facility was completely different because I had never trusted women up until that point, and I let those ladies breathe life into me. We had outside women come in and, and share their stories with us. And somewhere along the way, I really started to trust the process and the program for what it was. And I really started to take it seriously. And, you know, I think going through that detox process is really what helped me. I, I had an encounter with God in the middle of like the worst withdrawals ever. Um, and he told me that it was okay to let go, like let go of all the past hurt, let go of all of the past traumas, let go of this, um, this hold that I was allowing the drugs and alcohol to have on me. Um, and, and I think that's really what helped shift me. So, you know, in treatment, I, I did get a temporary sponsor. I started working the steps right away. I made a decision that I wasn't going to be able to go back to my old life. I had to change everything, people, places, and things. So instead of going back home, I, I checked into, I went into an Oxford house or transitional housing out here. And so it's like a step down from treatment. And that really helped me as well. Um, so when I got out, I, I had the same sponsor and I was just going to meetings every day. Like I didn't have a job at that point. So I was going to like three meetings a day. I was in Oxford, which was a step down. I had like my, my sober network of women that I lived with. Like I just, I, you know, I kicked ass and, um, that really helped to get me connected with the program. I was living in a new city where I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything. I had changed my cell phone number. I had gotten rid of all my old social media accounts. Like I literally changed everything because I knew that if I gave myself even a shred of freedom that I might fuck this up. And because this was my last shot, like I didn't have any more, I didn't have any more good insurance. Like I had state insurance at this point. So like I wasn't able to afford to go to outpatient after I got out of treatment. Like I had one shot to get this thing right. And uh, I, I went with it and, um, I'm so grateful that I did. The Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous really saved my life. Um, I kept that first sponsor for, I think, 11 months or something like that. I worked the steps. Um, and then I switched programs to Narcotics Anonymous because um, I, I like to do, I like different perspectives. So I switched sponsors a few times so that I could get different views. That's just how I worked. And um, I, I wasn't really like attached to people at this point. So a crazy story. Um, when I was two and a I had just gotten out of treatment and I was living in the Oxford house for maybe two weeks and I went to this late night meeting and uh, I was pretty boy obsessed because, you know, I was early recovery. I didn't have anything. I was still really toxic back then, you know, 
as is. I was clean and sober, but I was still toxic as hell um, and, and working through my shit. But um, I saw this guy and he was changing the trash. I could tell it was his home group because he was like changing coffee and taking out trash and shit. And I, I looked at my best friend and I was like, he is so cute. I'm going to marry him one day. And she was like, get out of here. You do that at all these meetings. Every boy you see is like this. And I'm like, no, that this is it. And we locked eyes and um, I said, hi. And like, he found me on Facebook that night or something. And we started talking and we talked on Facebook like every single day for like 30 days. Cause I was on lockdown at my Oxford house. I wasn't able to like go out past 11 o'clock or something. And uh, he finally asked me like, like to be official. And uh, then like two months later, I find out I'm pregnant. And it's crazy because um, I, you know, I, I had my first son, he was living with my parents and his dad had actually come over to like take him to live with him. And I was like, holy cow, I'm like living in an Oxford house. I don't have a job yet. I just met this dude and I'm pregnant, like I'm screwed. And um, I, I wasn't sure if I was gonna keep the, the baby. Um, just, you know, full transparency. I wasn't sure that I was going to go through the pregnancy. And I went to the little doctor's appointment to confirm that I was pregnant. And they, they gave me the paperwork and I took it back home to my girls in the Oxford house. And they were looking at the paperwork and they said, Hey, did you see this? It says your estimated due date is November 26, 2016. And I was like, wow. You know, and everything about my story is like a God shot, you know, just like little, little nuggets that he throws at me. And I was like, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep the baby because no, what are the chances, right? That's my sober date, November 26th. But then I was like, you know, the babies, babies don't come. I don't know if you have kids, but babies don't come on their due dates. Like that shit's just a guess, right? My daughter was born on November 26, 2016. She was born on my one year clean. Um, my daughter saved my life. Um, she is exactly like me. She is a ball of sass. She is every, she is like my mini me. Um, she's so fierce and she came into this world roaring and super quick with like a three hour labor. And she was my gift. Um, she was my gift in recovery. She was my reminder from God, you know, to keep going. Don't fucking give up my date, no matter what, keep my date. My date is so much more important to me. I think because we share that and she doesn't know that she saved my life, but I will be as transparent with her, you know, as, as time goes on and as she's able to like digest things, but that's my saving grace. Um, I, I don't know, like, there's just something about that. And I know you shouldn't put your recovery into another person or into another thing. And I don't, but that's, that's really part of the reason why I work so fucking hard um, to get it right. Uh, because, you know, they say don't date in your first year, don't make any major life changes. Well, I made it like a lot of life changes. I did not go the traditional route in that sense whatsoever. Um, but then I ended up, I ended up marrying the boyfriend. Um, so we've been married now for two years. We actually have another child, um, TJ. He just turned one. And, you know, we're just doing the thing. I just turned five and my daughter just turned four and we celebrated her birthday. It was on Thanksgiving day. And it was like all the feels for me because when I um, got clean, you know, my clean day was Thanksgiving day uh, five years ago. So um, yeah, it's just, it's been a, a crazy, crazy ride. Um, I'm so incredibly thankful and grateful. Um, now recovery, what does recovery look like for me? It looks like a lot of therapy, um, especially now with, you know, COVID and everything. Um, I love that there's a lot of online meetings, but honestly, I don't go to a lot of AA meetings. It's just, I feel like life 
life blesses you with, you know, just being busy, you know, like we're grant, we're given this opportunity to like live a life. And so unfortunately, one of the things was, is that, um, I'm not able to attend as many meetings and I live on a small island now. So um, I'm not as close with uh, the old group that I was going to for my home group. But those ladies, like those women are still some of my closest friends today. Like they were all, it was like all sober friends from recovery at our wedding. It was like, you know, they, they threw me like a baby shower. Um, You know, like they, these women are just, and I mean, it's like, old white women who like knit sweaters and shit, like people I never thought I would be close with who like have my back a thousand percent, no questions asked. And I trust with my life and with my kids' lives. And, um, I never would have had that had it not been for AA. And, um, but yeah, you know, recovery looks like a lot of like therapy. I work with a counselor. I I'm open. It really helps. And my husband's also in recovery. He's got nine years. Um, so we have this common denominator of like, you know, we call each other out when we're, when we're acting toxic, like, Hey, I think you need to go like do a reading or go for a walk or something, you know, like take a minute by yourself or call a friend or whatever. And we, we kind of have that shared commonality. Um, and yeah, I'm just so grateful. Uh, I try to be as open as possible um, on my social media platforms, which is why I talk so freely about my recovery. I've got a YouTube channel. You can find me on at, um, on YouTube just with Brittany Jade Anthony. Um, I talk a lot. I just did a five-year Q&A on there where I talked a lot in depth about um, my recovery and what it's been like up until this point. And then I also did a full in-depth story with like a lot more detail. It's like 45 minutes long of me just blowing my head off. And then, um, I also have Instagram where I do throw little nuggets of sobriety in there. Um, you can find me at Brittany Jade Anthony with an underscore. And then I've got a website as well, a blog, uh, Brittany Jade Anthony.com and TikTok, you know, all the things. So that's where I'm at socially. Um, and I just, you know, I try to keep the, the message of hope going. I try to let other women know I've got a lot of moms who follow me, um, who share pretty vulnerable with me, you know, their struggles with, you know, alcoholism and, um, or that they think they might be, um, struggling with alcoholism, especially with quarantine and things that are going on right now. People are finding out that they don't have, um, healthy coping mechanisms um, and they're isolated for the first time and they're having to like deal with shit like their kids 24 seven or like their spouses and they're being put in really uncomfortable, stressful situations. And so um, they're like reaching out, like, how are you doing it? And, uh, you know, I just try to, to be like a, I don't want to say like, I, I want to be like the face of recovery, but I do want to let people know that I'm a safe space and I try and share as freely about it because I want to break the stigma. There's still so much stigma surrounding alcoholism and drug addiction, especially in like the mom world and like the parent world and just being a woman. I feel like in anywhere, it's like there's this nasty little dirty secret stigma attached to people who struggle with drugs and alcohol. And one of my favorite things is telling new people like, oh yeah, like I don't drink or do drugs or anything like that. Like I, I used to be a junkie five years ago and like seeing the look on some people's face. Like I love that shock value because when they're like, oh, you don't look like, you don't look like somebody who struggled with a drug, with a drug addiction. I'm like, oh, what does someone who looked like a drug addiction look like? And then we get to open this channel of communication because I, I used to be think the same thing. Like I'm not the bum under the bridge, so I don't have a problem. You know, I, I, I went to college and I'm all smart and like, no, you know, some of my, some of the smartest, uh, wealthiest people I knew struggled with this, you know, so it, it can literally attack anyone. Um, so yeah, I, 
I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. And that's all I got. Great. That was beautiful. Thank you. And I hope, I hope, you know, Brittany, that you are a message of hope. So yeah, it was incredible. What did you think about that, man? Oh man. I mean, every, she, she's gone through so much, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, some, I look at my story and the things that I went through and I, and then I look at other people and I'm just like, man, like, I don't know how you, I don't know how you overcame all of those things. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, how she was able to, to navigate through all of that and then find that, that, that moment where she's like, this is it. Yeah. If, right. if it ain't now, it's fucking never. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. That insurance you know? thing really, really fucking put the screws to her. You know, yeah. like she had to, she had to do something. No, I just, I thought it was an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I love that there's so many, like, like addicts are not dumb, you know, no. like, like it just shows over and over again, a, a full ride yep. to any, mm-hmm. after, after coming up from such abuse, mm-hmm. you know, going through all that shit. And then like, like she shared about something that I can always identify with the food, right? Yeah, right, I can right. still identify oh with the food. My like God, the, food the food is a motherfucker, man. And it's still a motherfucker. Yep. And, and, you know, just like needing to escape because of the self image, mm-hmm. you know, and, and finding that place at, at such a young age where we can gain value and identity, like feel valuable by being the party the life person. of the party. Yeah. You know, like, Hey, here's where my value lies. Let mm-hmm. me, let me, you know, whatever negativity it is, you know, I look back on it now and I can see how dangerous it was as I'm sure she can, but I found value in that same thing. Sure. Me know? too. Mm-hmm. Having dope, being, knowing where to party. Yeah, have, I was like having a buyer. People finally like me. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm accepted. Like, yeah. look at me. Like I'm, I, I was that guy too. Yeah. Man. And I, Hey Cameron, do you know where we can get some drugs? Yes, I do. Cameron's let like, me, let me help you. I can get you some drugs, but I'm just going to try not to black out tonight. Right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I like that part too. Where she, you know, she said she just tried really, really hard not to black out. I was just going to try to not black out. I mean, I, I, I remember that, you know, I remember, you know, really just making that the goal. I want to get just fucked up enough not to, not to black out. There's like this point. That's so awesome. Yeah. And then, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Too bad. But that point is just a fleeting moment. All of right. Just like, I'm there for two seconds. And yeah. It's over. And you, it's just like you just go 80 miles an hour right past yeah, it. Yeah. You just shoot yeah. right past it. You know, just into yeah. the misery. And, and that that's where you fuck, you know, like, okay, somebody grabbed the matches. I got the fuel on my feet. Let's burn my life to the ground. Yep. Yep. Chasing that feeling, chasing mm-hmm. that feeling. And, and, you know, I'm just, I'm really grateful that she was able to. And again, you know, like not everything is the same for everybody. You know, she found her husband in the rooms under circumstances that are normally you yeah. know, frowned upon. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, using, mm-hmm. using men, like everybody was like, well, she's probably just going to use this one too. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, like they're just going to be bad for each other and they're both going to end up relapsing and dying. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a reason that, that it suggested you don't because you know, more commonly than not, it doesn't work out. But right. when I'm when I'm working with another person, you know, she's a perfect example of like I don't know for sure That's, what yeah. you need. Right. This might be the best thing that you know me and Avery should have 
not been together after we got arrested, but we are a success story, just like just like her and her husband are. And so, you know, I just I love everything that she's doing because she is such a good message of hope for the community because she's come so so far like five years mm-hmm. and then everything that she does on her instagram and tiktok and all her social media platforms and and just being willing to still take on uh and help other alcoholics and addicts that are in this realm you know yeah yeah she's she's you know she talks about just recovering out loud she's very very open about it and very honest about it and i think that that's what we need you know like i'm i you know i personally i'm not always great at that you know like i'm i'm not always great at like sharing my struggles but i think that it's important for for people to do that and for people to know you know like she's she's a mom and and i think that she talked a lot about how you know other single moms will just reach out to her and say how did you navigate this how did you do that mm-hmm. and and i think that that's very very important what we've seen that you know the that the stigma that comes from being a mom and an alcoholic, you know, yeah. like, um, and she's working hard to, to change that stigma through, through the work that she's doing. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. For sure. I think you need to give yourself some credit though. I mean, you have a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talks about recovery. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like, you know, I, I don't, I don't hide from my past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither does she. Like, she doesn't. I don't feel like you guys do either. There are times when it might not be appropriate to share, right? But that doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm I'm covering up or I'm not. You know, if somebody needs to know it and I'm and and I feel like I need to share it, then then I share it. Yeah, mm-hmm. no shame. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't care what people think about me. True. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't care if they all of a sudden think I'm this bad person or whatever, because I, you know, because now, you know, my struggles are more public than theirs. <laughs> yeah. Know? Right. I mean, it and then and I like that she's, you know, she's willing to. Yeah. And a mom, a mom, you know, mothers have that stigma that they need to be perfect. Or right. they, or, I don't know if you call it a stigma, but, you know, there's this expectation of women that that they have to be this perfect, you know, I don't know, homemaker type yeah, put together person all the put time. together. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is, is that I don't care if you're a man or a woman, that's never the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, I Alcoholism mean, is no respecter of person. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Male, female, you know, successful, not successful, whatever it is. You know, but I, I, what I like about her is she's just living her life and being who she is. Yeah. Yep. And yep. that's, and that's incredible. I mean, in my opinion, I, yeah. I agree 100%, you know, and, and, and again, you know, check out the other stuff that she has, you know, she gave a list of her YouTube channel, her, her website, her, you know, reach out, you know, if you see something that she's doing that you enjoy, like me and her, we when we hopped on zoom, we talked about air fryers for a little while. So, you know, it's such an adult conversation, (laughs) but you know what? Like you've made it, Willie. Yeah. You've made it. You guys heard it there. You guys heard her say God shot, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And and how beautiful is that? Like, doesn't that feel like it's appropriately used? Like she has this child on her, on her one year sobriety birthday. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And, and, uh, and feel free to take that term and use it. Everybody. Every. <laughs> you want to, you want to drop the God shot, drop it hard, drop, drop it like a shot. Whenever you want it, yeah. whenever you want. Don't overuse it. Throw it in there. Yeah, 
But you know, I really want to just uh, thank you, Brittany, yeah, for thank you. for everything and and uh, and and for sharing your story. It was absolutely great and uh, such a good delivery. She's yeah. a, she's definitely a speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, there you go, guys. How about that? Did, did you feel like you had a good episode, a good experience on our, on our show? Oh, I thought it was oh. a great experience. I, I just hope that it was that oh. I was able to bring to the table what you were expecting, or what you were what you were wanting. We had no expectations. You no, know, that's good. That's a good we way just to wanted live your you life. to come on, come on and be cool, and you did that, <laughs> and you did that for yep. sure. No, I appreciate you guys letting me come on. It's it's always fun to hang out with you guys. I love seeing you in the rooms. Anytime you guys walk through the doors, it's it's a good day. So yeah, I appreciate you letting me come out, hang uh. out with you guys for a bit. You're amazing, man. So, I, so I do gotta to give here. I do gotta give a shout out to do to it. Jordan, the the audio guy here on the podcast, because I've known Jordan since the whole time too, since mm-hmm. he's been in in the rooms. And so, uh, Jordan, you're a stud, man. Yep. Appreciate letting me come out here too. I mean, it's I remember me and Jordan we were at the Christmas party and we had to go get coffee. <laughs> Cause we didn't have any coffee for the kids, and I grabbed Jordan. I was like, "You're coming with me. Let's go!" And we went and grabbed a bunch of coffee together and spent some time together. So it was a it was a good time. But nice. yeah, he's okay. Yeah. He's all right. He's okay. You know, we keep no. him around. Yeah. yeah. Thank appreciate you guys. It. Appreciate it. Thank you, Cole. You're, you're the man. I really appreciate you being here. And uh, and yeah, uh, likewise. You know, I always like running India and and uh, you know feel like I could use a little bit more coal in my life. So will you come back? I'll come back. Yeah. Oh, well, great. Whenever you guys want. Can, uh, love can to have I, you back. Can I take just one second? I didn't. I didn't want to bring this up too early in the show, but I wanted to thank you personally for giving me my chip. You know. Oh yeah. We haven't had a show since I gained nine years of sobriety, and I just thought it's be amazing. a dis be a disservice to the to the listeners to our audience to not know that I recently celebrated nine years of sobriety. That you gave me a chip, Cole. Cole I was there. Cole was there the night of and uh, I definitely couldn't have done this without the three of you guys and everybody else who supported me through this so that's all I wanted to say ah thanks that's awesome you're the man I really appreciate it well um, make it about me keep inspiring oh thanks yeah and you too Brittany keep inspiring and uh, and everybody with that we're gonna wrap it out here remember that you are worth the work we will see you on the other side say goodbye we'll see ya Bye.